Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Let me know if you can hear me okay. I've got the phone charger in because my phone was low. So... Hopefully that's working. Also, I think someone's vacuuming or something outside. I can't figure out what's going outside. It sounds really weird. So there might be a little background noise. But uh, welcome to Revolution, everybody. Let's zoom in a little bit. Zoom this thing in. Because I'm charging it. I've got the, I'm usually got the camera here. So the camera's here, I think. Yeah. There it is. So, yeah. Not even looking in the right direction. Looking off. Let's see. What's been going on? What's been going on? What has been going on? I've been pretty busy with the kids. Um, yeah, yeah. Busy with the kids. Getting back to normal a little bit with life. Um... Not so many shenanigans going on. Uh, the press stuff is dying down, you know. So life's getting back to normal, as it always does. I'm actually getting ready to leave for... Um, I am leaving for Belfast. I'm very excited. Belfast, Northern Ireland. Um, doing some work out there with Mr. Peter Rollins and also hanging out and just relaxing a little bit as well. Haven't been, um, you know, need a little break from life. So traveling international is crazy now with COVID stuff, you know, you fill out everything. You gotta, I have to take a test when I get there. I'm already, you know, got the shot so I can get on the plane. But then when I get there, I had to order a test, prove that I ordered the test, and then take the test when I get there and then send it in and they keep track of you. It's really interesting. Um, but yeah. But I'm really excited to go back to Belfast. It's, it's almost been two years now. I was supposed to go back last year. And, uh, of course, all this shit happened. And uh, the COVID happened so that was tough um but yeah so now i'm just kind of getting back into things hopefully we can start looking for for some places to meet here soon um really not sure what's going on there's been so much change here with just revolution and stuff and uh i'm going to be working on a new project part of the reason i'm going out to belfast um that i'll so I've talked a little bit about, but right now I don't know how much they want me to talk about or not talk about it. So I got to figure that out. So not to keep anybody in the, in the dark, but, uh, I can hear everything. I hear my neighbor's TV, some sort of vacuuming process that's happening outside. Um, all right, well, let's hit it. Let's, let's get into it today. Um, today is world mental health day and, um, Pretty important, I think, 
World Mental Health Day, I, I, especially this year, right? You know, like, I think a lot of us are realizing how much our mental health affects us and affects others and hurts others, um, hurts ourselves. Uh, I think for this year, for me, my mental health has, has been been okay, um, but getting, you know, with this film coming out and, and it came out about my mom and all that kind of stuff, I, I started seeing analysts and seeing analysts are a lot different than normal therapists or counselors. Or, and um, it's been really, really intense. Um, luckily, I had had a few years of dialectic behavioral therapy, which is shortened for DBT. DBT is the short version of that. Um, and, and that's been very helpful um, to give me tools that I need to kind of get through depression or even if you get suicidal thoughts and or ideal ideation ideation is that it um you know how do you deal with those things and dbt gave me a lot of that but um but seeing an analyst it goes even you go even deeper into your your life and into your you know start looking into your unconscious and start looking at dreams and start looking at your childhood a lot more and so it's been really um, intense. And I think the one thing I wasn't prepared for is how exhausted I am mentally all the time. I'm just, I feel very tired and uh, worn out, you know. And it's not like I'm running, going on jogs or anything like that. It just mentally just drains me and exhausts me. And it's, I, I, I've always struggled with being tired. Um, but I think when you start to realize what it is, you know, when you start to realize like before it was just like, oh, this is how I was born. Now, now it's kind of like, well, this is part of my, my illness, my mental health issues. Um, and things are starting to get better, but the fatigue is still there. You're just like, oh, when will this go away? When will I, when will I not feel this, this heavy, heavy fatigue constantly? But I think a lot of us are going through that too with uh, the whole COVID thing. It just, you know, never knowing what, when it's going to get better or when it's going to get worse or who's going to get it and what's going to happen next. And it's very unpredictable and having everybody's work life all different and changed and all these interesting things and tough things and it's made it really tough. So, but for me, I've suffered my whole life from mental health issues with depression and um, panic attacks, anxiety, and things like that. So I'm glad there's a day where we can recognize that and look into that, and I hope we can do more with it. Um, I, I hope that in this country, in, this, in the States, we'll do more to recognize it. You know, like I, I go to an analyst, and most insurances, even I don't have insurance right now, but if I did, most insurances don't cover it, at least not 100%. And uh, it's pretty sad. I mean, that's, you know, that they don't want to help you. You get better mentally, you know. They're fine to, you know, give you as many pills as possible, which, you know, I've got nothing about being, I'm on medications, I'm not against it. But, um, but you know, 
things like where you see a light at the end of the tunnel, they go, oh, we don't know about that, or that's too much work. We'd much rather give you pills and keep you on medication than doing harder work to get better. So it's it's a bit, bit of a screwy system in the States. Um, whole health insurance thing anyway, uh, being a capitalistic ideal here in this country is pretty gross. Um, if you can live or if you can be sane or, you know, if you can afford to see doctors, it's pretty nuts. Um, but today I wanted to, to talk a little bit about like places in the Bible that have helped me with my mental health as I was going through kind of a dark period in my life. And, um, and one of those is in Romans, believe it or not. Paul, the apostle, um, who some of you may know I'm a fan of, um, but some folks really give Paul a lot of credit in, in Romans 7 for kind of having like this foreshadowing, this view, this idea of seeing the unconscious, you know, not that, you know, before Freud, before all these other people came in and talked about the unconscious, but the struggle that we have with our unconscious and with ourselves and that Paul put it in his best language possible for his day, but he understood this. He understood this struggle that w that's within us. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that and about the unconscious because I've learned so much about it as I, as I read Freud, as I go to my, see my analyst, um, you know, how much our dreams communicate with us to tell us, you know, what's going on in our lives and, and, and uh, trying to tell us what's going on in our unconscious and I mean, I had, a couple of years ago, I, I'd had this one re reoccurring dream constantly. And as soon as I was able to have it analyzed, I realized there were some things in my life that I was doing that was literally setting myself up for failure constantly. So I would constantly do these things. And as soon as I realized what I was doing, I stopped doing it, and I started to have more boundaries in my life and I mean, it was like night and day. All of a sudden it was really different. The way people were treating me, the way I was treating other people, um, and things got better. But it was like, I kept having this reoccurring dream over and over and over again and couldn't figure out what it meant until I had to analyze. And as soon as I figured out what it meant, I saw the things and the, the inconsistencies in my life of this one thing that kept happening. Um, so, you know, I don't take any type of like, you know, any type of therapy lightly. I, 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 I've done a lot of it. I've, I've done the one where you do the rapid eye movement. Um, and that was very helpful. Um, I did electric shock therapy, um, which was really hard and really tough and very scary. And um, lost my memory uh, for a brief time. Um, it was really tough. Uh, I do feel like I came out on the other side better um, but I don't know if the cost was worth where it got me, but yeah, anyway. So Paul in Romans 7, um, 14 is where we're going to start, says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is of the flesh. I can and will what is right. I cannot will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, is it no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inmost self, but I see my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man, what am I? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am not a slave to the law of God, but which my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. So let's look at these for a second. If you followed along with that, I'm sorry if the audio wasn't great, but check out Romans 7, 14 through uh, 20. It, it, it's pretty good. And basically what Paul is saying is like, I can't do what I want to do. I, I try to do it, but I don't. And there's this struggle within me that something else is happening. So like when I er earlier mentioned that I was having this repeated dream of this, the same thing happening over and over and over again in my life. Um, and it was when I realized what I was doing, that there was this unconscious thing driving me this unconscious desire to almost be humiliated. Um, but when I saw it and I was able to see it, I was able to confront it and deal with it and work with it. But before then, it kept, I kept like tripping myself up in my own life. And so um, a lot of philosophers and theologians and different people like that have said that this is when Paul saw, you know, Paul had, was was seeing the unconscious, and Paul's talking about the unconscious and grasped an idea of what the unconscious is. So for Paul, his words, rather than the lack, were more like sin. You know, I can't do these things because there's something within me. So what he's saying is, is there's something fighting within me. And there's this battle that we often have with our unconscious of uh, desire fulfillment. And then, of course, then there's the own thing in our lives, which gets brought up as like lack fulfillment, where we would just feel like something's missing in our life. And, of course, capitalism and, and materialism and things like that play off of it and kind of draw us, draw us in thinking us that, oh, if I just get this medication or if I just get this outfit or if I just get this much money or if I just get this partner or if I just get these things, I'll be okay, rather than learning to live with the lack. Um, so you have two things that are going on here with Paul. Is one is Paul is experiencing something happening that's almost unconsciously happening. Why, why, why do I keep doing these things? Like I'm physically like doing things I don't want to do, even though I know I don't want to do them. You know, he, he, he's shooting himself in the foot. So there's some sort of unconscious desires, some things that he's dealing with that he doesn't realize. You also have 
on top of that, mixed with that, is uh, prohibition of the idea of what the law brings and says, this is bad, this is good, don't touch this, you know, and all of a sudden everything you're not supposed to touch, you start to think, what if that's what's really going to make me happy, you know? Um, you know, if, you know, if you want kids to think about sex all the time, have them sign a contract saying they won't have sex until they get married, you know, or something like that. And then it's just sex, 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 you know? Um, it's so funny because growing up in, you know, evangelical church, they kind of gave you all these ideas of things that were bad, you know, like sex before marriage and alcohol and smoking and drugs, you know, and those were all the things I wanted to do in high school. Like, you know, I'm like, I know these are bad, but man, they just they seem so exciting. And it just, just seems like the church doesn't want me to have fun. They want me to listen to secular music, but that's the best music. You know what I mean? It just, that prohibition just aroused this, this, this fire and desire within me to want to do all those things. And I did a lot of those things. And to be honest with you, it didn't end up in great places because of them. Um, made a lot of mistakes and, 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 you know, they weren't, I didn't find God on acid or anything like that or the devil or anybody like that. But I mean, I had some fun, but then I also had some like acid flashbacks and alcoholism and things like you don't want. So, you know, you put all that together. Um, nothing really fulfills that, but it's that idea that the, the, that which is forbidden will make, might do that. And so what happens here is with Paul is he goes, well, you know, he starts to say we're free from the law, you know, and we, he, Paul starts to talk about grace and how Christ has freed us from this bondage of us and that. So what grace does is comes in and says you are accepted. What grace does, it comes in and says all is uh, permissible, but not all is beneficial. Um, and when you start to realize and look at things in a way of saying, oh, that's not, for, that's not forbidden fruit. It just might make me sick. Or that's not forbidden fruit, but if I, you know, it's just something that might not help me grow as a human being or help me think more or read more or understand more or deconstruct more or do these type of things. Um, you know, it's interesting to see what people trade out for God and what people trade it, you know, or trade God for and things like this, because sometimes I think everybody thinks like this, this idea of, of, of following God or this idea of being a Christian or something like that is going to answer everything. And then when it doesn't answer everything, I see people move on to like, well, maybe psychedelics will do that, or maybe deconstruction will do that, or maybe this faith will do that, or maybe this political system will do that, you know, if I follow these politics and I have these rules, you know, it's like, we're always looking for a law. We're always kind of looking for prohibitions. We're always kind of looking for something that's going to, to fix us. Um, and I think what Paul is realizing, and I don't even think we come to full realization with Paul in it though, is that, um, the only way for us to really live our life is to accept we're accepted. I think Tillich really hits it really well is that you are accepted no matter what. And, um, and, and Tillich even goes a little bit further to say like, it doesn't matter if you believe more or you believe at all. What matters is that you realize you are accepted by that, which is greater than yourself. And so for me, uh, that changed my life, understanding those kind of concepts. Um, the radicalness of Paul setting us free from the law, 
um, you know, why do we, I saw a meme the other day and it was like, uh, what did it say? It was something, it was this two guys talking, two actors talking from a TV show. And it was like, you know, show me a man who only does good things for fear of punishment or need of heavenly reward and I'll show you a piece of shit. Like, he's saying, like, if we're doing things because we're afraid of hell or we're wanting to get more crowns in our, you know, he's like, it's, you're not motivated to love people. You're, you're loving people for something. You know, you want to earn something or you want to be away from something. So for a long time, for me as a teenager, I thought I was trying to, like, not do these things or do these things based on my eternal salvation or heaven or hell, you know. Do I get tortured for eternity or do I get to go to heaven and sit in, on clouds all day? You know, um, <laughs> neither actually sounded a whole lot of fun. Um, but yeah, so, but when it didn't become about that, you know, when it becomes about grace, it comes about acceptance, it becomes about not life after death, but life before death and loving others and helping others even going for, I'm going to go into a little bit of a rabbit hole, is like meeting with people you disagree with, you know. Um, spending time with people from different backgrounds and politics and ideas and thoughts and customs and cultures and all these different things without having this, this you know, cloud and this burning flame next to your head, you know. And, 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 and living within that acceptance, removing their prohibition, taking that away. And I'm grateful to be alive in a time where I'm able to see an analyst and talk about the unconscious and see how my unconscious is communicating with me and see what's going on in my life and find healthy ways not to have coping mechanisms, but to actually live life on life's terms and not feel like, oh, if I, you know, have to collect everything, you know. I've been a collector my whole life, and I've really tried to like not do that as much, just because I realized a lot of that collecting for me was coping mechanisms. Like it was that next object, it was that high, it was that need to connect to a certain part of my life, um, thinking I would be fulfilled if I just had the next object. And you know, and then what you always realize is that it doesn't even become about the object. You heard this from a lot of collectors. It's about the hunt. You know, they get about that far and then they stop. <laughs> Um, but I've been, I've been really working on just trying to even get rid of the, the excitement of the hunt and just go like, I'm okay. You know, I don't need that in my life. I'm not saying people who do that are, are bad. I'm just saying those are areas in my life where I've realized I've been coping and replacing for something else rather than living life, rather than accepting myself as accepted, thinking that a particular fashion or reading a particular book or, or, or having a particular amount of followers will somehow allow me to, to feel at peace with myself. And just going like, I don't need that. I'm okay as I am right now, just as I am. And that's really great. Um, and not living in this area where Paul was. I, I remember one time I, I, I was reading from this. We were doing a study through Romans. And then there was, uh, <clears throat> Revolution was. But there was this church group that came and sat in in our, in our, in our, in our talk. And uh, we did the seven and they were, the church pastor was like, there's no way that Paul was a Christian when he was saying that because Christians would not have that type of struggle. Paul was, must have been referring to before he was a Christian 
that that's what was happening, that he had that struggle because, you know, after we're victorious in Christ. And for me, it's like, okay, well, that's really bad theology even when I was 22, 23. Um, <laughs> you know, we all have that struggle. That's what they don't tell you. You're always going to have those struggles. Paul's having that struggle because, I mean, he just came out of something that was all law. Now he's saying, I'm free from the law. But if you read Paul, he's constantly back and forth with the law. You know, it's this constant, like, he's trying to work it out. Even he's trying to let it go as he's teaching us. And I, that's kind of my style of teaching. It's like struggling with things, dealing with things, but bringing it out to the public, bringing it out to you folks and saying, this is where I'm at. This is what we're doing. This is what we're going through. So, um, and I love that. I love that we see Paul's struggle, you know, of, of letting these things go because it's something that we all have to do and it can wear on us mentally. It can wear on us physically. It's really tough. Um, but it's also, this is why grace is so valuable. And I think, once again, when Paul's saying, like, I'm, there's nothing good in me, I think what he's saying is, is there's this lack within me that I can't seem to fill. And I think he, he I, I think really that's what he thinks sin is, 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 is this, this lack, is my, my guess. Um, I want to turn over to Matthew and talk about Jesus for a moment and, 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 and kind of take you back about three years of my life. Um, about th three years ago. Seems like it's been a million years. Um, might have been four years, but maybe three. Um, in, the, in October. I believe it was in October. Um, my marriage was over in September. Me and me and my wife, uh, my last wife, decided to separate. And we have kids. And um, I was already in a really dark place. I was very unhappy. And uh, I have pictures where my, my beard's down to here. I'm just not taking care of myself. And I got out of the marriage. We separated. And I lived with some friends. And I just continued to go into a downward spiral. Um, and I was, I was in therapy, I was seeing therapists and everything, and I just couldn't fight this desire of, of not wanting to live anymore. Um, it, it was really tough, and it's one of my few regrets in life. I, I think I have two regrets that I can put my fingers on. I might have a few more, but really two regrets in my life uh, that are big ones. And um, I tried to take my life. I tried to take my own life. Um, because depression and mental illness uh, really does tell you lies. It, it lies to you. It says, I'm not worthy. You know, nothing's worth it. No one cares about you or they, those who care about you would be better off not to care about you if you weren't there. Um, you know, having kids, people say, how could you do that? You had kids, you know, I still do. <laughs> but it, it, it was a lie of saying that my kids would be better off without me. Like they would have better lives to not have a dad that was so lazy or so unmotivated or such a failure or such a bad husband or such a bad partner. You know what I mean? Like their life would be better without me. Like everybody would be better without me. And that's the lies 
But we don't realize that a lot of people are being told in their head, like, God doesn't care. There is no God. People don't care. Life is shit. Now, a lot of this comes from from trauma from growing up in the church and hearing like these different mixed messages and things like that um, as well. And trauma of seeing like literally like the church. I mean, this is why they've made movies about my family's fall in our life is seeing, you know, conservatives and liberals, usually people who are at each other's throats, like joining together to like hate one, 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 two people, you know what I mean? Come together, oh, then let's make an example and let's do this and let's scapegoat, you know? If you wanna know why I don't believe in cancel culture, when I go back three years and say I tried to take my own life, you know, well, what is, can someone asked me the other day, what is cancel culture like? And I said, well, you know, my parents, my mom's dead, my dad went to prison, did his time, and I still have to block people on social media and things like that because they still attack me because of something that happened 40 years ago. You know, so that's what it does. It just, it, it carries on. It's like, it's like a prison in North Korea where they make like three, three, three generations of families serve time. You know, it's not that awful by any means. But what I'm just trying to say is it's, it just, it doesn't just stick with one person. You don't just cancel a person. It goes down into the family and it causes conflict. It causes, this is why I always, always said, you know, judge the, the anti-gay movement by the fruits which is homelessness, suicide, mental illness, and things like that. So I would say judge the, the concept of cancellation of people by its fruits and see where it's taken people. Um, and then when we cancel the wrong people, I mean, look at uh, Sinead O'Connor, for example. You know, she was trying to protest when she ripped up the picture of the Pope, protesting that, you know, people or kids were being abused in the Catholic Church and being molested and ripped up this thing, and then, you know, everybody turned on her, you know. Um, mostly everybody turned on her, and uh, and now she's looked at like, oh, she saw, she saw the future, she knew what was happening, she, she, was, she had her finger on the pulse, you know, and, you know, now we're like, oh, we're sorry, but, like, look at her mental health and her mental state right now. So, and she struggles with that. <clears throat> So we aren't doing people favors when we cancel them. I think that's why the Bible talks about grace and restoration. And I think when the Bible says we do what we want to do or we don't, or I, want, I know this is wrong, but I still do it. I think there's like this human nature within us that says, yeah, put the bad things away rather than confront them, rather than deal with them. You know, we just want what, what, what feels easy, what feels convenient, what helps us feel better. And, uh, and, and so when we talk about the, the narrow road. The narrow road is the road of restoration. The narrow road is the road of living in acceptance. The narrow road is living with the void um, in your life, with the lack in your life. Um, you know, it's a different way to go. Uh, it, it's saying, no, I won't, I don't care if most people think cancel culture is cool, especially in like my group of people that I spend time with. I'm still not going to agree with it. I'm going to take a narrow road and I'm going to, you know, some of them might stop talking to me. That's okay. And hopefully some will talk to me and we'll see things differently and learn from what I had to go through. Um, but let's, let's look at, I, I'm getting off topic here a little bit, but it's because I'm, I, I want to talk about the importance of mental health. So I tried to take my life and uh, I woke up in, in the hospital 
and I, they pumped my stomach and, and I was alive. And I mean, it was like, like for a second, I thought I was in purgatory when I woke up because it was, <laughs> I didn't even believe in purgatory. I don't even believe in hell. Um, <laughs> don't know if I believe in heaven much, um, but I was like in this white room, you know, and I was just kind of like walking back and forth in this hospital. And I just, you know, like it was so bizarre and people were just kind of coming and walking by me, but not seeing me. And I, it was so surreal. Um, I ended up doing some time in, in the psych ward after that, which was really scary as well. And then that led to electric shock therapy and all this kind of stuff, uh, which was really horrible and really tough to go through. Um, but it was this feeling of, of, of pure abandonment that, that depression can do to you and anxiety can do to you. I mean, I, I, before, I, before this, I think I was having panic attacks two to three times a day. And I just wasn't talking about it, you know. I just was doing my work, trying to do my best, and thought, well, this is how I have to live life because there's just these things in my life. And, and a lot of that's past, thank God, you know. And so I can say there's hope. And I can say, like, being alive is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Not succeeding in suicide is the greatest thing that happened to me. You know, I regret trying it because I regret that I have to sit down and explain that to my kids one day. Um, is one of the biggest regrets. I regret almost leaving my kids you know, with one less parent. Um, those are my big regrets. Um, but I'm grateful that I had survived and that I'm still here and the things that I've learned from that and how much more I appreciate life and appreciate others and appreciate myself. And so anyone who's sitting here, maybe listening now or later on a podcast, you know, like it's not worth it. Life will get better. I promise you. Get through it. Find somebody. Find help. But get through it um, because life has something planned for you, something different, something unique. And uh, it's, it's quite a gift. It, in a way, it's like resurrection, how I kind of think of it, is, is that second chance, that second you know, life of, uh, of living a life that was unlived and realizing that I was just not living the life I was supposed to live. I was not being the person I was supposed to be. And I had to accept myself as who I was and had to like also realize, and this is the great, really cool part, and I think this is why I become more punk rock as I've become older, is that I had to allow other people to accept me for who I was. I had to just say, this is who I am. If you don't accept me, that's fine. You don't have to spend time with me, but this is who I am. And I kind of all of a sudden realized what, what that book of my mom wrote years ago, I Gotta Be Me, was this idea of like, I have to be me in order to stay alive. Like, I can't compromise my truth. I can't get up here and say, oh yeah, cancel culture. Yeah, man, it's great. Let's, I'm behind it. Let's cancel this person, you know, just because to be with the group and be like, hell yeah, Democrats are awesome and, and, and conservatives are bad. You know, I mean, like I see my friends, some of my colleagues do that and they just get tons of followers and people love it and they eat it up and they go crazy for it. And I'm like, but I can't do it. I just, it's not my conscious. I can't do that. I think both sides are so screwed up that I don't like them anymore. I don't like either one. I feel like capitalism has destroyed our political system. I think greed has destroyed our political system. Um, I think maybe one's a little bit better than the other, but then again, I, maybe one's just better at lying to me, you know, and telling me what I want to hear and giving me crumbs from the table every now and then. You know, us, giving us crumbs from the table every now and then. 
So you learn, I've, I've learned through that rebirth um, to be me and to be okay with people not being okay with that. And it's quite a freeing thing uh, as we talk about this mental health day. Um, in Matthew 26, Jesus has this conflict. Uh, 26.45, because from noon on, darkness came. Oh, wait, no, I'm, I'm, I jumped a little further. I'm on 26, I gotta go back. 126.36, here we go. Then Jesus went, this is when Jesus goes to pray. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Cassimena. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons, Zebedee, and began to be grieved and angst, agitated, grieved and agitated. So Jesus is sitting praying, grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here, stay with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup come from me. Yet what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not stay awake with me one hour. Stay awake and pray with me. You may not, so you may not come into this time of trial. The spirit is deed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words. Now, what's interesting and why this verse really got me, especially about six months after my, my attempt, my suicide attempt, um was the fact that Jesus is begging his disciples, begging his friends, be with me, but he was alone. He's begging God, I don't want to do this. Take this away from me. He's anguished, he's annoyed, he's human. You know, if it was, you know, we want to have this, where Jesus is just like, oh, I'm, I'm sad, I'm going to die. He's not just sad he's going to die. He's angry that his friends aren't sitting with him and praying, that his friends don't get the pain that he's in, that he's grieving, and he's grieving. He feels like his grieving is alone. He doesn't have the empathy of his friends even with him. I've been lucky enough to have some really good folks around me, even though I don't hang out with people that much. But Jesus is grieving. So the point isn't just the point which most preachers would get out of this. I guess some teachers would say, you know, let this cup pass. He didn't want the wrath. He didn't want the sin. And he didn't want, no, I'm not saying all that. What I'm trying to say is he was having doubts. He was lost. He was feeling vulnerable. And, um, and I love that. I love the humanity of Jesus. Um, I remember the first Easter Sunday that I spoke after 
uh, all this is I did the crucifixion and I could not do resurrection. And I just said to the, my, to the congregation, to you folks, some of you are probably listening. I said, I can't, I can't preach resurrection right now because I don't feel it inside. And for a very long time, I, I, I felt like I was in that garden moment with Jesus. Um, my mental illness, you know, a lot of people couldn't relate to it. I'd say the one good thing is that I, I've, I, I mean, I think social media is often a car wreck, but there's a few good things that have come out of it, and that's finding other people who suffer from mental illness and, and connecting with them and having neat conversations with them. Even reading some of these mental health memes that kind of hit it on the nose, and you go, oh, I'm not alone. That's, a neat, that's, that's some of the neat things that have come out of social media for me, is, is knowing that there are other people who are exhausted from being depressed or exhausted from struggling to just try to be normal. You know, there's other people who feel the doubt, who feel the worries. You know, our, you know, I was a huge people pleaser, not in my talks. I've never done it in my talks, but within my intimate relationships, I was always trying to please everybody. And I realized I had to stop or it was going to kill me. You know, but seeing that people struggle with that or people struggle with, is there, are they mad at me? Is someone mad at me? You know, you're always thinking someone's mad at you. Like, as long as everyone tells me they're not mad at me, I'll be fine, you know. Or they're not disappointed with me. Are they disappointed? You know, all that kind of thing. And, and constantly living in those moments, but I had to do a lot of hard work to get past that. And it just wasn't hard work within therapy. It was hard work in theology. It was reading philosophy. It was having good conversations. It was talking to other people who suffer through the same things. Uh, it was the empathy of other people that helped me, the sympathy of other people that helped me. Um, you know, so I'm grateful for that. So don't take, you know, don't think like, well, I'm not a therapist or I'm not this. I can't help anybody. You know, you might be the person who helps them, who takes off that last straw, that keeps that last straw from dropping on their back by giving a positive word. That's another reason I don't like cancel culture and I don't like online stuff because we're so easy to to project our own fears and things onto other people and to condemn them so quickly and not realizing what they're living through and what they're going through and that they might be feeling just as hopeless but holding it in a different way than we are, you know, than a different way that we recognize. And uh, I think we have to be careful. I think often when we're, we're set up to, to be defensive to our own selves, our own things, or just a few people around us, we, it's easy for us to forget the pain and the hurt of our enemies as well. But if you've subscribed to Christianity, it's, we're called to love our enemies. And so even when your enemies are saying things that are hurtful or angry, you know, is to look at them and say, are, what are they suffering through? What are they going through? You know, that's where I want to help people get to is a point where you're able to empathize with your enemies, that grace is so amazing in your life that when you look at people you don't agree with, you, can, you, you want to see that. That's, that's part of my work is to help people see grace for others and the other and those who they think are the problem. And uh, because if you have grace for them, and I think you'll be able to have a conversation with them and talk to them, and I think you can change them. And I've had a lot of you disagree with me flat out on that, and that's fine. Um, but you come back, so maybe you're hearing something good out of it. I don't know. But I've also seen some of you turn around and start talking to people you disagree with and stop doing certain things and stop scapegoating and stop doing this stuff, and I've seen your life's transformed. And for me, that just like blows my mind. And I'd love to say that most of that came from me, but most, a lot of this came from, from um, reading uh, my best friend's work, Pete Rollins' work. For me, a lot of this, 
building on this grace foundation, you know, it came from Paul and Jesus and Tillich and things. But then Peter Rollins, then I read some of his stuff and it just really became alive in a different way. Um, the last thing I'll read here is uh, Matthew 27. And it's Matthew 27, 45. And it goes, um, From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Um, Aila, Aila, Ilama, Sabak Thainai, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said to this man is calling out for Elijah. And once one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it to his put it on him to on stick and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again. And I love that it doesn't say what he said. You know, another verse as we hear that he said, my father, you know, it is finished. But he said, just cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, what's interesting about this for me is, one, he feels forsaken, not only by God, by God, his father, but you can also see when in the moments of prayer and doubt and pain, Jesus is feeling forsaken by his friends and by the people he loves the most and cares about the most. And then by God, the one he's saying, take this cup from me, but all your will be done you know, here I'm doing your will, and now all of a sudden I don't know you're there. You're not there anymore. What the hell's going on? What's the deal I'm getting here? Christ feels forsaken and emptied by God. Um, I don't pray a lot, but I'm trying to help a friend of mine. They asked me to write a prayer for this book, and I'm trying to nail this prayer out that is basically a prayer of doubt and forsakenness. And I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, and it's not easy. Because um, for me, I'd heard my, my best friend Pete use this talk about God forsaking God, you know, God dying, the death of God, the forsakenness of Christ, Christ doubt, Christ almost becoming an atheist on the cross. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I was like, oh, that's cool. I, you know, he's an interesting way of putting it. It makes people think, you know. Um, but I was reading one of his books after I had tried to take my life and, 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 uh, had just gotten a new apartment. I was getting my kids back normally, you know, get my life kind of back on the foot, but I still felt this loneliness. And I would often just take showers and cry in the shower. I don't know why the shower is such a great place for crying. Also rehearsing arguments that you lose um, <laughs> or want to win. But yeah, and I felt completely like God wasn't there anymore. And here I was every Sunday because I didn't, we don't have a budget to pay guest speakers to come in and I couldn't have, you know, everybody just speak all of the time. So I'm trying to speak and do this thing. And I feel that God isn't there. And I feel like God is dead. And all of a sudden something happens where all of a sudden I become closer to who Jesus is and who Jesus was. 
and complete empathy with Christ at that moment that I go, this is sharing in the suffering of Christ. To feel the abandonment of God, to feel that God is completely gone, that you are no longer there, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. To me, it was, it was a miracle moment for me. To me, it was a life-changing moment. To me, all of a sudden, it wasn't Jesus in the sky. It was Jesus on the cross in his darkest moments, feeling abandoned by everyone, including the Father, including God, whatever that is, the ground of being, whatever you, but feeling completely abandoned, crying out, why have you forsaken me, in front of others. And what do people do in this moment usually? What do they people do? This is what I see Christians do and conservative Christians and woke Christians both do this a lot. They get real snarky about stuff when you say something really radical and they get, you know. And what happens is people get snarky and go, oh, let's see if Elijah shows up. Let's see if this happens. You know, in his moment, there's darkness. And it's like, let's push this man to the brink of death. And that's what happens. He breathes his last breath and he dies. He's completely abandoned. Um, I do like in the other verses where it says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I like that because it shows us how we should love our enemies and love those who forsake us and hurt us and persecute us and abandon us. Um, but in this one, it doesn't say that. And, and, and why I chose this one is because the last words you get is, why have you forsaken me? And uh, for me, I can say that's the closest I came to understanding Christ and feeling close to Christ. And for probably six months to a year, that's what I just walked in. That's why I couldn't preach resurrection, because to me, it wasn't about if the miracle is there or if the victory is there. For me, it's going, I, from what I understand, the Bible's telling me is to try to be more Christ-like by loving my enemies and loving my neighbors and, and things like that. But also now that, I can also be Christ-like and, 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 and question the presence of God in my life. And, um, and at the same time, have Christ become very real in my own life and walk in that. And, uh, yeah, I think it was at those moments is where I moved to what Tillich calls the God beyond God. When we let go of the God of our understanding the God of our our lives, we let that go, and there's something greater than that God. And for me, that's where I am. I'm at a point where it's the God above the God, the God that you experience when God of your understanding completely disappears and dies. And um, it's something that I haven't quite figured out how to put into words yet. But it took me losing everything. It took me giving up completely. It took me to be felt completely forsaken. It took me to go into a very dark place to get to where I'm at. You know, so uh, there was this, I remember this David Bazan on it. It said, save your applause to the end of the show. You know, if, if we're going to judge people and mark them and then mark their families, and, you know, I mean, every everywhere I go and ever do, I'll be marked by who I am, who my parents are every time. It's, that's just going to be my life. But the fact is, I can say, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing any of this without the mental health issues, without the suffering, without <clears throat> Jim Baker, without 
Tammy Faye, without Tammy Sue, without my bodyguards that I had, without the people I knew in my life, without the losses in my life, without the bad marriages, without these things, you know. Um, and I don't choose this, well, that was the devil's attack, or that was just, just living life in life's terms. But what's gotten me here is surviving that. And I think that's what I want to tell most people who are struggling with mental health is it's worth surviving. It's worth staying alive. Um, anyway, I, anybody know what time it is? I don't have my watch on today. Um, I think I've gone a bit long. So on that dark moment, I'm going to say that life is worth living. Nothing's certain. I can't promise you anything uh, as far as, as what lies after life. And what life is after death. But I can promise you that there is life before death. And that for me, following the scriptures, understanding the Bible, uh, getting into um, theology, but also now diving into philosophy, and also spending time with uh, thinkers like Freud and, and Dr. King and people like that um, has taken me to a deeper level and given me a life worth living. And that dying would have been, that would have been a horrible place to put the period on my life. I, I'm glad that my life didn't end there. Would I have lived a good life? Yes, I would have had a great life uh, and a tough life. And life is still tough, but I'm grateful for every day I wake up so if anybody's out there thinking about taking your life, it's not worth it. I promise you, it's not worth it. I promise you there's something different on the other side. Don't do it. Even the hardships are worth it. The growth that you get from it. You know, just, you're not alone. And those thoughts that your depression and your anxiety tell you aren't true. And uh, I'm going to end this. I, I, I usually... Um, Someone said, stay away from Freud. No way, I love Freud. Freud's amazing. I think Freud was actually trying to teach us all how to think. Um, so I'm going to have to completely disagree with you, but please come back um, if you like. But I really like Freud. I think Freud's pretty good. Not everything, but a lot of it's really good. Um, well, I'm going to leave you, leave you with this. One is you are accepted, as Paul Tillich says, talks about. You are accepted. I hope you can accept that. And two is what I'm going to tell you is, um, is, is, is usually we do Q&A, and I'm sorry that we haven't done Q&A in a couple of weeks, but life's been really tough and, and a lot's going on. And, uh, but thank you. I still love you too, Jennifer. We can just, see, that's the great thing about revolution is we can agree to disagree. We don't have to, we both love Freud. Like, stay away from Freud. I'm like, no, read Freud. You know, we can do that. That's what I want revolution to be. As I, that's what I love about coming out of mental health is that I don't have to agree and having mental health and dealing with these things and having this, this light of this moment of being comfortable in who I am is that, and we might sit down and I might go like, you know, you're right. You know, who knows? But the idea is, is like, I love the fact that we have a congregation that is diverse in their ways of thinking, you know, because I think we don't look enough in the diverse thoughts because we can learn so much from each other. And just agreeing to disagree is like, hey, guess what? All of a sudden, it's not us agreeing that makes us a safe place. It's the fact that we can disagree and still love each other. That's what really makes things great here. So I'm going to leave you with these words from a man of mine who taught me very, very much, and, and I would not be who I am today without. And he used to always say, 
God loves you. He really does. And that's my father, Jim Baker. Thank you so much. I hope you guys have a great week. I hope to see you next week. And, um, you know, as always, we could definitely use your support to keep this ministry going. It's uh, been kind of a hard couple months, but I think it has for everybody. Love you so much. And remember, God loves you. He really does. Sorry that there's pronouns in there. And I love you. And whatever God is, I will figure that out. But you are loved. You are accepted. Bye-bye for today. listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com slash donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website.